we will see many of the truths that we sang about this morning taught here in this passage of Scripture. Last Sunday, you might have seen on the news, as I did, that longtime TV host Larry King died at the age of 87. Larry King was well known in the media industry. He had been in TV news for more than 60 years. He had interviewed countless individuals, including every U.S. president, from Gerald Ford to Barack Obama. He was best known for his program, Larry King Live, which was on CNN for many years. And as I read about Larry King's death, I thought of one thing in particular. One thing that I admired about Larry King was that he was willing to have religious conversations on his program. You know, in a world where religion is kind of off the table, it's too controversial, we don't talk about that, he actually invited those conversations. I remember uh, in one particular instance, about a week or two after September 11, 2001, he had a program in which the question to be addressed was, where was God on September 11th? And on his panel, he had Deepak Chopra, who was a sort of new age spiritual guru. He had a Jewish rabbi, a Christian author, a Muslim cleric, and Pastor John MacArthur. And during the course of that conversation, it was obviously a varied conversation. But Pastor MacArthur was able to share clearly the gospel on CNN. And so the fact that he was willing to have those kind of guests and those kind of conversations, I think, was admirable because it allowed to go deeper than just the superficial. I read once that someone asked Larry King who in history he would like to interview. And his answer, of course, was Jesus Christ. Well, the person began to probe and asked him, well, what specifically would you want to ask Jesus? And here was his response. He said, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born, because the answer to that question would define history. You know what? He was right on that point. That if Jesus is who he said he is, that changes everything. And indeed, we know the answer to that question. God has given it to us in his word. You see, what Larry King was saying is basically the same question that Jesus posed to his disciples once. Who do men say that I am? You see, that's the question that if we answer it properly, changes everything. Who is Jesus? People have a lot of ideas. People have a lot of different perspectives on what they think about Jesus. But we know there is one truth. There is one truth about who Jesus is. He is Lord of all. And someday, everyone on earth will acknowledge that truth. Jesus is Lord. That's what we get to at this passage of Scripture. Jesus is Lord, and someday, everyone is going to acknowledge that. Every person, from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea, across this entire globe, whether they are from various faiths, various cultures, various languages, all will confess Christ as Lord. Now, that is apparently not the case in our day, is it? Like I said, there are many perspectives on Jesus, but not everyone confesses that he is, in fact, the creator God, the Lord of all. Well, this incredible passage that we're going to look at this morning in Philippians 2 pulls back the curtain and gives us a clear picture of who Jesus is. It answers that question, showing us Jesus in his incarnation and his exaltation. I'm talking about Philippians 2, 9 through 11. 
Now, previously, we looked at verses 5 through 8, and we saw there Jesus' incredible humility. That Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and made himself of no reputation, as some versions say, and took on the form of a servant. And humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And so you have this marvelous picture of Jesus' humility. But that's not where Paul ends this passage. The story doesn't end there. Jesus rose from the dead. And he ascends and lives forevermore seated at the right hand of God. Now, many people look at this section of Philippians, verses 5 through, well, really 6 through 11, and have suggested that this was an early Christian hymn. Now, I have my doubts about that. But there is certainly a lyrical quality to this whole passage. It, it has wonderful poetry, if you will. Uh, one author I read who agrees with me and doubts that this was actually a hymn said this, the passage obviously sings even if it was not originally a hymn. But you'll notice in the text, it has sort of a V-shape to it. It starts off in verse 6 with Jesus in the form of God, who has all the, the attributes of God, all the, the glory that is ascribed to God himself. And then he humbles himself in verses 7 and 8. So you, you go from the heights of glory to the, the lowly state of a servant down to even the, the depths of the cross. And then, verses 9 through 11, we shoot back up to the heights of glory again. So you have this sort of V pattern that the text follows. And that's where we get to today. The, the exaltation of Jesus, the Christ who humbled himself, is exalted. Exalted to the highest place. Now, these few verses, 9 through 11, are worth our time to slow down for. Because they teach us the result of Jesus' humility. Because Jesus humbled himself, there are three results, and we see them here in the text. First, let me point this one out. Because Jesus humbled himself, he will be exalted by God. He will be exalted by God. In one of Jesus' parables, he made this statement. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Now that expression, the first shall be last, has kind of found its way into our vocabulary, even apart from the scriptures. And yet, in our world, it's plain that everybody is not struggling and striving to be last, are they? They're striving to be first. I mean, that's, that's the American dream. That's, that's the rat race, right, is to get to the top. But that's not the way of Christ, who humbled himself and it was by humbling himself, by making himself last, that God exalted him to the first place. Now, verses 9 through 11 in this passage is one long, continuous sentence. And it's built around two verbs. First, exalted. God exalted him. And secondly, God has given him. Those are the two verbs that control this passage, this one long sentence. Let's look at verse 9 together. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So there are those two verbs. Did you see them? He has exalted him and given him a name. This therefore that begins verse 9, 
or some versions might say wherefore, but same idea. It follows from Jesus' humility in verses 5 through 8. So this is not just a, an addendum on here. It's actually part of Paul's argument. He's working towards this. He says, because Jesus humbled himself, because he made himself a servant, and because he was obedient to the point of death, therefore God did something. God exalted him. Now, reading on this passage, some people felt a little uncomfortable with this idea. It almost felt like God is rewarding Jesus almost, kind of like a works-based system. You know, Jesus humbled himself, so God is going gonna, is gonna to exalt him. Well, yes and no. We, first of all, should not have an idea of God as promising, for instance, salvation as sort of a carrot out in front of us that, you know, if you, if you humble yourself, if you obey me, then I'll provide salvation to you. That's, that's not the picture you get from Scripture. Salvation is by grace through faith, right? And yet, the Bible does talk about this very concept. The last shall be first. So there is a reward for those who are humble. That God has said that he will honor those who humble themselves. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so it's not really a stretch to see that at play here. I mean, if that's true for us, if God rewards humility in people, then certainly he rewards humility in the person of his son. And that's what we see here. In verse 9, though, we observe the heights of his exaltation. Right here in verse 9. You notice in verse 9 it says, God has highly exalted him. By the way, this will be important a little bit later on, but you notice that God is the subject here, not Jesus. It's not that Jesus exalts himself, it's that God has exalted him. And as I said, that will be important as we move on. I want to get to the verb, though, because he says, God has exalted him. Now, the word exalted means to be lifted high, to be lifted up, to be set on high. Figuratively, the verb means to have a high position or to honor someone with recognition. But the verb that's used here in verse 9 is actually a compound word in Greek. It's the word hooper upsao. So upsao means to exalt. Hooper is a prefix. It's where we get the word super. So it really wouldn't be a, a stretch to translate this that God super exalted Jesus. That's kind of the idea. Many, many translations will say he exalted him to the highest place or highly exalted him. That is what's at stake here. The, the God of the universe exalted Jesus high above all others. He has super exalted him. So the person who many on earth knew as Jesus of Nazareth, the simple carpenter, unassuming guy, God will lift up to be the ruler, king, and judge of the universe. Talk about an exaltation. Now, what will Jesus have when he is exalted? Well, he will have the glory that was his in eternity past. Some people have tried to say that, uh, well, Jesus now receives something more than he had before. But really, what, what more could he have than what he had before, right? He was in the form of God. Listen to what Jesus prays in John 17, verse 5. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That was what Jesus was looking forward to. He said, Father, glorify me with what I had before. All the glory and splendor of heaven. 
So we see the heights of his exaltation. We also observe the name above all names that's given to him. So these are the two verbs. He is exalted, highly exalted, and he's also given a name. He's given a name. Now sometimes we, we sing about Jesus' name above all names. There's a gospel song that says there is something about that name. And the name of Jesus means something special to us if you know him, doesn't it? I mean, is there any other name out there that means more to you than the name of Jesus? Is there any other name that can calm our hearts and forgive our sins? Peter said, there's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. So there is something very special about this name, but there's two questions I think we ought to ask here. First of all, what does he mean? What is the name that God gives him? Again, if you look at the commentaries, there's a lot of various opinion on this. There's basically two choices. Either the name is Jesus or the name that God gives him is Lord. Now, you can make arguments for either one. Um, the very next verse says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So that seems to make sense. But also, later on, what's the confession? Jesus is Lord. So there's an argument that can be made for either one. I don't know that you have to make a big distinction because Jesus and Lord are the same person. It's not like uh, we necessarily have to identify what is the name. The point is, God has exalted the name of Jesus above every other name. There's no other name that's going to sort of receive recognition next to Jesus. Instead, Jesus occupies a place entirely unique in all the universe. The second question, though, is what does it mean that his name will be above all names? Well, you know, as I was thinking about that, singers, actors, uh, entertainers of all kinds, talk about having their name in lights. You ever hear that expression, you know, somebody's name in lights? And it goes back to the old days where you had the big marquee signs. I guess they still do it in places, but you know, the big marquee signs where you'd have the, the production, the name of the play or the name of the film or whatever, and up in lights would be the name of the star. And that was what you wanted. That's how you knew you'd reached the top, is because your name was in lights. You received top billing. Unlike the, um, unlike the uh, support bands, or whatever, what would you call them, the uh, opening acts, you know, these are the headliners. I was reading about the golden days of Hollywood, as they are so-called, and Spencer Tracy was one of those examples of this kind of, this kind of thing. Spencer Tracy was a big movie star in the late 1930s and on. And by that time, he had already asserted himself as being a very bankable movie star, and he insisted that his name always get top billing on the films he was in. In fact, one time he walked away from a movie because they were going to bill Humphrey Bogart above Spencer Tracy, and he couldn't deal with that. Later on, his longtime companion and co-star, Catherine Hepburn, became as big a star as he was. And yet he always refused to take second billing next to her. Someone once asked him, I said, well, why don't you ever just play second fiddle to Catherine Hepburn? Why do you always have to be first and not her? And he said to them, excuse me, this is a film, not a lifeboat. I guess in a lifeboat he would have given her first place. But in a film, he was going to get top billing. You see, what I'm saying is Jesus receives top billing in the universe. There's no other name. When you look at the cast of characters, it's going to be Jesus, and, and there's no other names on the poster. Because his name will have no competition. 
There's no supporting cast. There's no others who will receive glory and recognition. It's Christ and Christ alone. No one else is really going to matter in eternity. You see, the name that's above all names will be Jesus the Lord. When you look at this passage and what it says, it's pointing to the fact that Jesus will be exalted by God, that he who humbled himself will be lifted high. The name of Jesus is going to be written in lights. And all will recognize, all will, will humble themselves before the one who humbled himself. Here's part of the point, though. God exalts and God honors humility in Jesus, but also in Jesus' followers. God honors humility. Now, for Jesus, that meant exaltation to the highest place. And only one person, Jesus, will be praised forever and ever. The question, perhaps, that's most pressing is, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus, who is the name above all names? I think for those in this room who do know Jesus, we say, yes, there's no name that means more to me than that name. But for someone who maybe doesn't understand who Jesus is, what all this means. Jesus is just a name. So my question is, do you know him? If you're not sure, or, or maybe, maybe you can recognize, no, you know, I'm never, I don't know Jesus personally, then talk with me or talk with one of our men here at the church. We would love to share with you how you can know Christ. Second, though, in our outline, God not only exalts Jesus, but Jesus will be acknowledged by all people. Jesus will be acknowledged by all people. We see this in the very next verse. This name that's lifted high will be recognized by everyone. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's this day when everyone is going to confess, everyone is going to bow and recognize Jesus is Lord over all. Doesn't that sound awesome? Can you not wait for this day when everyone is going to recognize Jesus as Lord? It's hardly the case today. And yet, what is, what is he talking about here in this passage? Well, clearly Jesus is already Lord. It's not that Jesus is waiting at some future time to be crowned. He is Lord now. But he's talking about the second coming when Christ returns and all will recognize, yes, he is Lord. There's no denying it. And this verse, these actually two verses, 10 and 11, are so comprehensive in their scope. Do you see this? First of all, he talks about every knee, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, the bowing of the knee was an, an act symbolizing submission, reverence, and even worship. So when a king would come by, it was expected that the people would bow the knee to him to show their, their respect and their reverence and, and their submission. That You're my king. I'm not the king. You are powerful. I am not. Kneeling also was a matter of worship. 
especially in ancient times where you were expected to kneel, for instance, in the shrines of the gods and various things. And so this may have an aspect of worship to it as well. But at the name of Jesus, everyone, every knee, no exceptions, every person is going to bow the knee before Christ and declare he's Lord. Now, this does not indicate universal salvation. This doesn't mean that in the end everybody gets it and everybody's going to confess Jesus and become believers. In fact, a lot of these knees, I think, are going to be bowed by force. Uh, One author says it like this. There is in this language no hint that those who bow are acknowledging his salvation. On the contrary, they will bow to his sovereignty at the end, even if they are not now yielding to it. See, the the world has a a bad case of stiff knees when it comes to the Lord because they worship themselves. They bow before no one. They are their own master. Coming a day, there will be a time when Jesus will be recognized. And whether the world wants to or not, and whether they do it through clenched teeth or not, they will confess and they'll be forced to confess. Yes, Jesus is Lord. So every knee will bow. But we also see every tongue confess in verse 11, right? He says, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, no exceptions. Notice what they're confessing, though. It's not that he's a great teacher or a great man or he was a very significant historical figure. They're recognizing, no, Jesus is Lord. This is a recognition of his power, but also probably his, his godhood. They're recognizing that he is the God of the Old Testament, the God of Scripture, recognizing him as Lord. They will confess, it says. The word confess means to agree to something, to speak in agreement with. So the world will have to agree with us that Jesus is Lord. So every knee, every tongue, but also he talks about every being. You know, Let's go back to verse 10. He says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. He's talking about beings. Intelligent beings are going to submit to Christ. And he gives three spheres. And by the way, we ought to mention the fourth one, every place, because that's also here. So every being, every place. Talks about those in heaven. Now, heaven refers to the place where, where God is. And you, you see in Revelation, John is taken to a vision of heaven. And what, what resounds in heaven? 24-7 is the praise of God, right? So it doesn't surprise us that heaven would declare Jesus is Lord. But then it says those on the earth. It's talking about people. Those who are alive when Christ comes are going to re- recognize that he is Lord. Then it says those under the earth. Now this is the most puzzling of all, because it it probably refers either to the dead or possibly to demonic powers. They too will have to confess. All those who have died, all, all those who are in opposition to the Lord will have to recognize, no, Jesus is Lord. So every being in every place will echo with the sound of Jesus' lordship. All will recognize who he is. Jesus, though he is humbled, and he humbles himself, will be exalted and acknowledged by everyone. 
And as I've said, there's only one name in eternity that's going to matter. The name of Jesus. There's only one person we're going to be confessing as Lord. That is Jesus. You know, sometimes you'll find a list of notable people from the past. You know, notable U.S. presidents, greatest world leaders, most successful generals. And, you know, some come, some go, but there's always these greats, you know, people who have a whole chapter in the history book dedicated to them. And there's a lot of great men who have lived on earth, great in terms of their accomplishments. But I'll tell you this, in eternity, they're going to be a footnote, if even that. Because there's one name that's going to matter. Jesus, Lord of all. So all of humanity is rushing around trying to make a name for themselves trying to assert their place in history, trying to you know, be remembered for something important. When there's really one name that's going to be remembered forever, the name of Jesus. So it follows that what you do to honor and what you do in the name of Jesus is going to have echoes into eternity. What you do for your own fame and your own glory will be gone just like that. You see, there's one name forever to be praised. Even the greatest men who shape history are going to be a distant memory. One name will resound with infinite worth and beauty, and that's the name of Jesus. He was going to be acknowledged by all people. Finally, though, he is Lord of all. Not will be. He is. Jesus is Lord of all. Not only will he be exalted, and that's true. He will be exalted someday. And everyone's going to be forced to recognize someday, but even now, Jesus is Lord of all. Whether the world recognizes it or not, that's an essential truth about Christ. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you like it or not, Jesus is Lord, period. Look at verse 11. It says here that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This confession makes it clear Jesus is Lord. In fact, if we were to line the words up like they are in the original, it's actually the Lord is Jesus Christ. That's the confession that's made. The Lord is Jesus Christ. Now, in the Philippians' ears, this probably rang loudly. Everywhere the Philippians went, there was always this constant statement of Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. That was something that people were required to say when they offered up certain offerings in the Roman temples and uh, various other uh, interactions of civic life in first century Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. That was what they heard all the time. And yet, this claim is what defined those Christians in that early centuries. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, Jesus, the Lord of our life. The one who humbled himself and took on the role of a servant is here called Lord of all. And this is even more powerful when you come to grasp the Old Testament background to these verses. Because the language of Philippians 2, 9-11 comes right out of Isaiah 45. And so I want us to turn back there. If you got your Bible, flip back to Isaiah 45. It may take you a minute to get there because you haven't been in Isaiah in a while, I understand. But this passage in Isaiah 45 is a clear 
Paul is clearly using this language. And watch what he does with it. So this is Isaiah 45. This whole latter section of Isaiah 40 and onward is some of the greatest uh, theological passages in terms of God's character. God is unequivocally stating, I am the Lord, there is no other. All your false gods, all your idols are nothing. There's one God in this universe and it's me. So listen to what he says. Isaiah 45, I'm going to pick up in verse 22, although we could, we could go all the way back to verse 14 with this, but 22, Isaiah 45. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely the Lord, in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and, shall be ashamed, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now, the connections between these two passages are very clear, but do you notice what Isaiah is saying in 45? He says, I am God, there is no other. At, to me, every knee shall bow. So he's saying, every knee is going to bow to me, God. Then he applies that language in Philippians. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is not just a highly exalted being. He is God himself. The same language God uses for himself in Isaiah 45 is used of Jesus. So every cult that would point to Philippians 2 and say, oh, Jesus was just in the form of God. He wasn't really God. You know, he was some lesser being. They have to deal with verses 9 to 11, in which the strongest language of Jehovah from the Old Testament is used for Jesus. So there's no getting around the fact that Paul is making Jesus equal with God. In fact, even the word Lord, sometimes you'll find it in the Old Testament in all caps. It's being used of the divine name, Yahweh or Jehovah. And so whenever the, the world is confessing and declaring Jesus is Lord, it's not just that he's a powerful king, but that he is the God of the Old Testament. There's one last thing I want to deal with, though, in Philippians chapter 2. Something that might be troubling to some, and that is, when you get to verses 9 through 11, it might seem like Jesus' humility is kind of undercut here. Like, okay, Jesus humbled himself, but then God exalts him. It's, it might seem like it's, it's kind of undoing his humility a little bit. Let me give you an example. It'd be like if a sailor on a ship was scrubbing the deck or, or you know, doing whatever menial task, but he's sitting there thinking to himself, well, tomorrow I'm going to be the captain. So I, I'm okay with you know, cleaning out the latrines or whatever because you know what? Tomorrow I'm going to be on the top. Well, doesn't that kind of undercut his... I mean, would you call that person humble if the whole time he's just kind of grudgingly scrubbing, thinking to himself, tomorrow I'm going to be exalted? Well, somebody might say the same about Jesus, that you know, he humbled himself, but you know, he knew he was going to be exalted, so it really kind of undoes his humility. Well, this is where we come back to this whole passage. It's God who's doing the exalting. Jesus is not exalting himself. In fact, he does not go in... To his, he doesn't take on human flesh 
saying to himself, well, you know, I'll do this, but at least I get exalted in the end. No, he, there's no hint of that. He does it in absolute humility with no expectation of anything. And he goes in humbly to serve and God exalts him. So there's not a, he's not faking humility in order that he can turn around and be you know, exalted in time. Instead, he trusts in God. And God is the one who will exalt him. You know, I believe there's a lesson to be taken away from verses 9 to 11 for us. That is, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Not to the heights that Jesus was, but the humble will receive their reward. Listen to these verses. Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Pretty clear. First Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Here's the point. Jesus is Lord of all. That is the undeniable truth. Someday the world will come to realize it, but we have the benefit of knowing it now and worshiping him as Lord now. Not on a future day. He is Lord now, but in the future he will be recognized by all. James Montgomery Boyce, who was the longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, a staunch defender of biblical inerrancy, gives a good illustration of this. He, he provides the example of a little-known Italian monarch from the 1800s. During the 1800s, Italy was a divided kingdom. There were different states, each with their own king. Well, during the mid-1800s, there was a strong movement to reunify Italy under one king. And there was a fellow named Victor Emmanuel, who was the king of Sardinia, and he was behind this movement. And it, it gained a groundswell of, of enthusiasm. People began chanting and writing, like in graffiti or in, in uh, bulletin boards, wherever they could put it, they were putting this phrase, Victor Emmanuel, King of Italy. And they had a little abbreviation for it. Because in, in Italian, Victor Emmanuel, King of Italy, was actually V-E-R-D-I, Verdi. And that little phrase, Verdi, was written all over Italy, in anticipation that he would become king. So, Victor Emmanuel, king of Italy. Finally, in 1861, Victor Emmanuel was, in fact, crowned king of the United States of Italy. And and Boyce notes this. His name became a symbol of reunification of Italy and was written everywhere. Now, however, the slogan took on an entirely different meaning. No longer... Was it a cry of expectation? It was a triumphant acknowledgement of what had already happened. You get the illustration? As believers, we say Jesus is Lord, looking forward to the day when all will know that. So right now, in, in a sense, it's an expectation. Yes, he is Lord, but we're looking forward to the day when he will reign over all the earth and everyone will recognize he is Lord. There are a few passages in the Bible that so exalts Christ and speak of his divine nature as this one in Philippians. But there's a few lessons I want us to take away, and I'd like to highlight them as we close this morning. First of all, never forget that the Christian life is about Christ. 
That seems like an odd statement, doesn't it? And yet, sometimes we can make the Christian life about obedience. We can make the Christian life about faithfulness. And we can make the Christian life about uh, virtue. We can make the Christian life about love. And those things are all true of the Christian life, but that's not what holds it all together, is it? Christian life is about Christ. Gordon Fee, a fellow who's written a commentary on Philippians, says this so well. Listen to what he writes. First, whatever else the Christian faith is, and whatever Christian life is all about, it finds its central focus ever and always on Christ. And so we never tire of reading passages like this. We never tire of studying the Gospels because, you know what? Christ is what the Christian life is all about, exalting him, magnifying him, walking as he walked, learning from his example, worshiping him, trusting in him. It's it's all woven in. So Christian life is, first of all, about Christ. So is this a passage about Christian living or is this a passage about Christ? The answer, of course, is yes, right? Secondly, though, bow the knee to Jesus now. Bow the knee to Jesus now. Don't wait. There's going to be a day when every knee is going to bow. We know that. But the time is now. Don't do it as a begrudging rebel when he returns. Do it as a humble follower now. Again, the invitation is open to talk to me. Talk to one of our men here at the church or anyone here at our church. Would love to explain to you how you can know Christ. Third, though. Lift high the name of Christ, not your own name. Not your own name. You know, the world, as we said, is is rushing about trying to make a name for itself, exalting itself. But let me encourage you that what's going to matter in eternity is what was done for the name of Christ. His name is going to be exalted. So you have people who are running multi-million, billion-dollar corporations who are making a name for themselves today. They're featured on the fronts of magazines, and they're uh, you know, major investors. They're the movers and shakers who get things done in today's world. And they think they're making a big splash. But you know what? Ten years from now, 20 years from now, they're going to be dead. Someone else is going to have their job. And maybe history will remember them for something. But history moves on really fast. And their name eventually will be forgotten. But let me tell you this. That even the small things that you do for Christ are going to matter into eternity. Yeah, you may not have the multi-billion dollar corporation and, and may not be famous by today's world standards. But let me tell you, if you're faithfully raising your kids to know Christ and teaching your kids and grandkids to know him, that's going to matter way more than any person who's making a name for themselves out there today. If you're encouraging and discipling someone to know Jesus, that's going to matter far more in eternity. Jesus said, a cup of cold water given in my name, he will by no wise lose his reward. So even the small things, the little things that you may think nobody even notices, those are the things that are going to matter in eternity because it exalts the name above all names. Don't get caught up in this thinking of, I've got to make a name for myself. Make Jesus' name great, and that will matter forever.